So you wonder where we're going? Well, all roads lead to Rome. Romans. Turn the book of Romans with me, okay? We know the book of Romans. And um, hey, uh, yesterday, Marie and Beth celebrated uh, their 45th wedding anniversary. Uh, they're not here this morning. Yeah, they're, they're not here this morning, but there was a little bit of a get-together with them and some of their family, and it was pretty, pretty sweet time. And uh, just a real celebration of their lives together as they're going through lots of stuff. And then I heard Jody and Ron had a 15th anniversary this week, so congratulations to those guys. I didn't hear any other ones, so, you know, if I don't mention you, it's just because I don't know, okay? So right on. Hey, Book of Romans, Chapter 1, and... Uh, yeah, all, lead, all roads lead to Rome, and so I guess Paul couldn't get there. When, you read, when we're going to read this, we're going to find out that at this point in time in his life, Paul and his ministry, he couldn't get to Rome, so he decided he'd send a, a letter, and it would just go out throughout the empire. Now, that's what makes Romans a little bit different than all of Paul's other writings, is this sense that well, when you look at his other letters, he's addressing people. He's addressing churches that he planted on his missionary trips uh, or where he had visited or people that he, he knew. And he would be addressing some sort of need within the church, some sort of need within maybe their household or whatever it is. And, but this letter to the Romans is different because Paul hadn't planted a church in Rome. Uh, we're going to see at the end of the letter that he is going to mention lots of people in that church family who, who he knew. But it's like he's writing this letter. He's got a bit of a blank canvas as he writes to them. And led by the Holy Spirit, he's on his third missionary journey. He's got a layover in, in Corinth. He's there for about three months doing ministry. And during that layover, he puts, uh, I guess it's like pen to parchment or something like that. And he writes this letter uh, to, the, to the Roman church. Martin Luther, the great reformer, called this the perfect gospel. He said Romans is the perfect gospel. And just like it's been said, all roads lead to Rome, it's also been said that the road to revival always leads through the book of Romans. Major revival started with hearts being touched by uh, the book of Romans. The first one that's kind of recorded in history is the story of Augustine. In, in 386, he was a young man in the backyard of his friend and he knew that, you know, this, the sin and the rebellion in his life against God was killing him. It was leaving him with a sense of emptiness and he was struggling to make his final decision for Jesus. And as he was hanging out with this friend, there's the craziest thing happens when when you read his story, there's some kids playing in the yard next door and they were just singing as they were playing this game and they were singing, take up and read, take up and read. I don't know what song they're singing. But Augustine, influenced by that, believed that God was speaking to him and he picked up a scroll that was laying nearby and he began to read from the book of Romans, from Romans chapter 13. He read this, not reveling in drunkenness, nor in debauchery or licentiousness, not quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for your flesh to gratify its desires. And he, he didn't read, he didn't need to read any further. He didn't have to. Through the power of God's word, Augustine had faith to entrust his whole life to Jesus Christ from that moment. In August of 15, the year 1513, Martin Luther, who was a monk, 
was lecturing in the school where he taught on the book of Psalms in the seminary. But in his own personal life, he sensed this deep sense of turmoil. And in his studies, he came across Psalm 31 verse 1. And it says this, in, in thy righteousness deliver me. And he thought this, how can God deliver me in his righteousness? I'm an unrighteous man. I'm the one who needs to be righteous so I can have deliverance. What I deserve is to be condemned to hell. And Luther kept, kept thinking on this and he turned to Romans chapter 1 verse 17 which we're going to look at this morning that says this, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith from first to last. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And Luther went on to say this, that, that night and day he pondered that until he grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is the righteousness whereby God's sheer grace and by his mercy he justifies us through our faith in him. And Luther says, therefore I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the doors open into paradise. This passage of Paul, he says, came, became for me the gateway into heaven. Begin to understand faith alone. And Luther was born again. A reformation began in his heart. And we know that he was the father of the great reformation. There's another story of the influence of the book of Romans. And it has to do with um, a man who was a failed minister and a failed missionary. And that was John Wesley. He'd come back from the Americas and just dropped the ball and sensed that he had really failed on this missions trip to the Americas. And Went home to England and in a small Bible study where he wasn't really wanting to go, he went in and they were reading Luther's commentary from the book of Romans. And, and while, they were, while that was being read, Wesley said this, that while, he, while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart begin to strangely warm. And I felt that I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And as an assurance was given me that my sins were taken away. And that night, John Wesley was saved. It was also while teaching through the book of Romans, actually, that the father of our church movement, Calvary Chapels, where uh, Chuck Smith was teaching through the book of Romans in a little four-square church that he was pastoring. And he realized that he could as he was teaching it, that God was calling him to throw off the yoke of religion. And his life was changed and he went on to pastor a little church of 25 people that, that grew into a church that today actually still ministers to tens of thousands of people, although Chuck passed away in 2013. And thousands of churches born out of him discovering that message of Romans. And so the book of Romans is full of life-changing truth. But it has to be approached with some determination, some focus. When you read it, you know, if you've read this book in your quiet time, man, the pages are thick. Chapters pack a punch, you know? I say to my kids all the time, we're sitting at the dinner table and somebody's whining about something that's on their plate, you know? That doesn't happen in your house, I imagine. But it happens in my house from time to time. And I say, eat it. It'll put hair on your chest. And they always, oh, dad. Oh. And Romans is kind of like that, you know? This is the kind of book that'll put hair on your chest. Now, I was thinking about that. I don't have that issue. Losing hair on my head. I got more coming out my nose and my ears all the time. 
And, uh, but this is that kind of book, man. Maybe you'll get more growing out your nose and your ears. I don't know. But the same Holy Spirit who unfolded the truth of Romans throughout the millennia can do the same for us. And this is a book that is about learning to grab hold of grace, learning to grab hold of uh, mercy and faith alone in Jesus Christ and cast off the yoke of religion. And so let's check it out. This morning we're going to check out uh, just the first 17 verses of chapter 1. So chapter, uh, verse 1 says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart by the gospel of God. Now, the life and ministry of Paul, we know his story. It's like well documented in the pages of the New Testament. And part of that is because he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. His Hebrew name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus, but after Saul met Jesus and was saved on the road to Damascus, he changed his name to, to Paul and became the apostle. And I mentioned earlier that Paul wrote this letter from the city of Corinth while he was there on, a, on his third missionary journey, about 58 AD. And so by this time, the church is about 25 years old. If we just kind of put the calendar together a little bit about the book of Acts and when Jesus is crucified and all this stuff, the church is about... Uh, 25 years old. And Paul describes himself to the Roman believers. He's, he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. That's how he begins to introduce himself in this letter. Now, in New Testament Greek, there are several words used to describe a servant. And this one in particular is the word doulos, which describes a bond slave. In Hebrew culture, a slave would serve their master for a term of six years. And then in the seventh year, Hebrew culture and law, biblical law was this, is that the slave was to be released uh, from that position of slavery after the term of six years. And so the seventh year they were set free. But if that slave said, man, I like living in this house. I got a good master. You know, my wife and kids maybe are here in this home with me. We, we make it... A good life here, and this is this man's a good master, and I don't really feel the need to leave his home. In fact, we're quite comfortable here. Then that slave could offer themselves to the master as their bond slave, and the, and the master would take that servant, and he would drive an all through his ear. They would pierce his ear, and he'd put an earring in that ear, and that slave would become a slave by choice. That's what the word bond slave means: a slave by choice. And so Paul says that I, I am choosing to make myself a slave and a servant of Jesus Christ in the gospel of God. A conscious decision. Paul the servant of Christ Jesus. You know when you make yourself a servant of Jesus and he takes, he's like the good master, right? He like takes good care of those who make the choice to serve him. Paul said I'm, I'm called to be an apostle. An apostle is someone who, who's a special ambassador. They have a special uh, message to deliver. Paul was set apart for the, a special task uh, that he was to share the good news to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 9, when Paul meets Jesus and Jesus knocks him off his high horse, which is quite the picture of Paul. He gets knocked off his high horse and he says to him, Saul... Saul, why do you persecute me? And we find out in that story that, that Saul was the chosen instrument of Jesus to take the message of the good news to the Gentiles. He was to carry the name. 
He was to carry the name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And there's Saul, you know, in this whole picture of Acts chapter 9, he's persecuting the church. He's throwing Christians in prison, separating families, overseeing killings and imprisonments of those who profess the name of Jesus. But God intervenes. God had another plan for this man. God intervened in Saul's life and Jesus was revealed to him and he became God's instrument, the bond slave, the apostle set apart for the gospel of God. You know, you think about Paul. It's like, man, you never know who the Lord is going to touch. You know, in your mind, you just think about, man, worst case scenario, you think about that person. They probably live next door to you or something. Man, never in a million years. You know, maybe the Lord's calling us to pray for those people. There was, there was Christians praying for Paul. And he was set apart to the gospel of God. The gospel here, as Paul introduces it, he, he calls it that, the gospel of God. In this sense, that the gospel is owned by someone that it belongs to someone. This wasn't Paul's gospel. It's not the gospel of CTK in the sense that we made it up. Not Paul's gospel in the sense that he made it up. The gospel belongs to God. And simply we're messengers of that gospel. And the gospel of course means good news. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but there's a translation of it in Greek. And when that, that translation describes the release of the people of Israel from bondage in slavery in Egypt, when they were led out of Egypt, the word that is used to describe what happened is that very word gospel, meaning this, it's good news. You can go home. You can go to the promised land. You're free, good news. And the gospel is a message of good news. You know what it's not? It's not a message of good advice. There are plenty of people who can offer you good advice. When I need good advice, there's people I go to. There are books you can read if you need good advice. There are experts for any situation you might be going through in your life. But the difference between good advice and the good news is the person of Jesus. We don't have a message of just good advice. The church has the gospel of God. That's what we've been entrusted with. We have the message of good news. And I would say this, but if you do need good advice, don't go to people that leave Jesus out. You know, don't go to a church that leaves Jesus out. And so Paul says this, he's, he's set apart, like Paul, Actually, you and I have been set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2 says this, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I said, what, Paul? Where, where's the gospel promised? Well, we know this throughout the pages of our Bible everywhere. Right from the start of Genesis, the gospel is proclaimed. You could turn to Genesis chapter 5. I'll, I'll just tell you about the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 because it's so fascinating. The Bible just records this, this genealogy from Adam to Noah and you think, well, what the heck? Why is that even there? 
except all of their names have meaning. Adam's name means man. Adam had a son named Seth whose name was appointed. Seth had a son named Enosh and his name means subject to death. Enosh had a son named Kenan and his name means sorrowful. Kenan had a son named Mahalal and his name means from the presence of God. Mahalal had a son and his name means one comes down. Jared had a son named Enoch and his name means dedicated. Enoch had a son named Methuselah which means dying he shall send. Because actually during, it was in his lifetime that they, they died from the year of the flood. Methuselah had a son named Lamech and his name means to the poor being destroyed. And Lamech had a son named Noah whose name means comfort. And when you put those names together in one sentence, here it is. Man appointed subject to death, sorrowful from the presence of God, one comes down, dedicated, dying he shall send to the poor being destroyed comfort. This is the gospel right in the first genealogy of the Bible. The Bible's amazing. Every picture, every symbol, every sacrifice is about somebody. His name is Jesus. It's about him. The whole, from Genesis to Revelation, is pointing us to the person of Jesus. And so, Paul says, the prophets proclaim it. I'm not telling you something new, he says to the Roman church. The gospel's not the clever invention of man, not the clever invention of, of Paul. You know, saw the ad this week, iPhone 8's coming out. <laughs> not that the gospel is not the clever invention of a man, like an iPhone 8. And we love, you know, the clever, the, the, the newest gadgets and gizmos. Mankind loves the latest teaching. Who's the new guru, Right? The gospel is not that. It's not a gimmick. The gospel is not new. The gospel survived the Roman Empire. The gospel survives persecution. It survives faithless churches that do not proclaim it. The, the gospel survives communism and Marxism. It survived the 60s. The gospel will survive the culture of today. This is not a good thing to know. The gospel will survive the culture today in which we live. It survives wars and rumors of wars because it is the gospel of God. That's what Paul's saying. It does not belong to a man. It's God's gospel. The good news belongs to God and here's the beautiful thing. He makes it available to us through his son Jesus Christ. The good news. And so the gospel, it, it transcends time, transcends culture. The gospel transcends all of these things because it's independent of this material world. That's a neat thing to think about our gospel, the thing that we hold to. It, it, it stands independent of this material world. It is the gospel of God, Paul says. It, it is the story and reality of Jesus and what he can do in the heart and in the lives of people who will just put their faith in him. And trust him. Believe in him. And at the center of that gospel story we know is Jesus. Just like the solar system rotates around the sun. The gospel does not orbit around. One of these things we're going to see over and over again. In the book of Romans. The gospel does not orbit around religion. 
The gospel does not orbit around good works. The gospel does not orbit around a moral system. It orbits around a person. He's at the center of it. His name is Jesus. It centers on him. It's good news, Paul says. He says this, the, the gospel of God, verse 3, concerning his son who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. He says, according to the flesh, Jesus was a descendant of David. He was born in human flesh. He had a human or, origin. The evidence of his humanity is his natural, physical, human birth. But he also existed eternally as the son of God. And the evidence of his deity, Paul says is in verse 4, is his resurrection from the dead. Check it out, verse 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember in the gospels? G Jesus said this to the teachers of the law. He said, destroy this temple and in three days, I'll raise it up again. And we know he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about himself. He was speaking of his body. He had the power uh, to rise from the dead because he had the spirit of holiness, Paul tells us. Meaning that he was set apart unto God. He was sinless. And the fact that he is, is, was sinless is proof enough for his deity, for his, his godhood. And because he was full of the spirit, he, he, he knew perfectly God's will. And because he had the power and the ability to, to exercise and to bring to fruition the will of God, he was raised from the dead. And Paul says this, he is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a, remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to Christians in Rome. Remember the Roman confession to Caesar? What did they say? Caesar is Lord. Paul's talking very culturally to this Roman church. And, and when a Roman person would make that confession, it was pointing to something because Caesar believed that he was God. He wanted his people to make that procl proclamation. Caesar is Lord. That, that statement was to say Caesar is a deity. He, he is God. But we know this, that's a confession that saves no one. Nobody says that anymore. Yeah, that one's gone. Caesar is Lord. It's just a footnote in history. And so Christians in Paul's day and, and those in that culture, they knew what the title Jesus is Lord meant. When, when they confessed Jesus as Lord, they were calling him God. They were identifying his deity, his nature as God. It was a statement of his deity and it was a confession of faith and loyalty. That's what it is when we say Jesus is Lord. It's a confession of faith and loyalty in the living son of God. And so Paul says this in verse 5 about Jesus. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring to obedience, to bring, sorry, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. What have we received in Jesus? We've received grace. In Jesus, we've received grace. The unmerited favor of God. You know, Paul calls himself an apostle, but he also says this, we've received grace and we've received apostleship. Not, 
just talking about himself here now, talking about the church. And what he's saying is this, is in Christ we've, we've received unmerited favor, but we've also received this. We've received calling. We've received purpose. We've received direction for our lives through this relationship with Jesus Christ. For Paul, following Jesus was not just this intellectual ascent of religion or an intellectual man-made philosophical concept that he was adhering to. It wasn't just theology. Following Jesus was reality. <laughs> Following Jesus was his existence. He said, I'm his servant. Through him I've received grace and I've received a calling for my life. And for you and I, it's no different. It should be no different. Jesus is to be our existence. F following Jesus gave, gave Paul's life purpose and direction, and so the same should be true for us. Because of Jesus, man, it's not ho-hum anymore. Life has direction and purpose and calling. He says, for the sake of the nations, actually. We're, we're to call the nations to obedience of faith. He says in verse 6, including you, begins to talk about the church in Rome, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You know, I would say this to you this morning. Do you know, maybe you don't know this, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I, I know that with absolute confidence. Because you're here this morning. Because he like actually brought you here. You know, it's not by accident. The spirit of God drew you. He wanted to speak to you. And he wants you to know that you're called by Jesus. You are called to belong to him. And you may not know that. You may not recognize that about your life. But the fact that God is reaching out to you through you even hearing the message of the gospel demonstrates the fact that you are called to belong to him. He desires to be your reality. You're called, he says, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. That's you. He says in verse 7, and to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, not only are you called to belong to Jesus, but Paul says this, because God loves you, you're called to be a saint. Now, I, I remember a few years back, the Catholic Church was like, you know, they were investigating Mother Teresa. Do you remember that? I don't know whatever came of that. I don't pay attention to these things, but I remember it was, it was news at least when they were inv investigating her. Is she a saint? So we need to like, investigate her life and ministry. And one of the things I know that they were looking for, because, you know, you can't qualify anybody as a saint, not just anybody, but got, they got to live an exceptionally holy life. And so they were investigating her life and they were looking. Did Mother Teresa ever perform any miracles? And if she did, then we can find out if she qualified for sainthood. But that's the wrong idea of sainthood here. T totally incorrect. Every Bible commentator that you read about this passage says that when this is properly translated, the words to be shouldn't even be there. Something they, they just put in for the ease of English reading. 
It should say, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called saints. Not to be called saints, but who are called saints. We're all saints. We're called saints. In the, in the Bible, there's only two categories of people. Saints and ain'ts. Saints and ain'ts. You a saint or you ain't. That's simple. If you're a believer, it says you're called a saint. It's not that God called, called any of us because we were saints. Rather, it's the other way around. We, we are saints because we are called and loved by God. Isn't that an awesome thing? Called saints. And Paul says to these saints, he says to them, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, of, of course, was the common. This was the greeting Paul always used. In almost every one of his letters, he uses this greeting. And, and grace is that Greek word charis. It was the traditional Greek greeting. It said grace. Grace to you. And peace, shalom, was the traditional uh, Hebrew greeting. They always come in that order. If, we, if you read Paul's writings, they always come in that order. It's grace and peace to you. Because you cannot know peace in your heart. You cannot know peace in, in your heart unless you first know the reality of God's grace. Unless you know his unmerited favor. And when you experience the grace of God, then you will know the peace of God. You know that by experience. The peace of God comes when you have peace with God by grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And peace with God is dependent upon, on the, dependent upon the work of Jesus. And all that Jesus accomplished on the cross, there is grace and there is peace because of Jesus. And so, you know, I, I, he, as, you, as you consider these things, you just think, you know, if you're, if you're trying to be holier, you know, striving in your flesh to be more deserving. God, I just want to be more deserving of your blessings. You know, if, you, if you're attempting that, you're, you're not going to experience his grace. But if you can understand this, that, that in his grace, God blesses you unconditionally as you just put your faith in Jesus Christ. It just is, you put your faith in Jesus and say, Jesus, God, I'm just trusting you to bless, bless my life because I put my faith in your son. And there's so much freedom in that. There's freedom in discovering the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, you experience peace as you just rest in his goodness and what he freely gives. See, see, Jesus is so gracious. The Lord is so gracious that there's nothing that we can do to earn our way right into his presence. When we call on him through the name of Jesus, he just responds every time. And you know, I, don't, I, I know that you're the same as me. I, I just personally, I'm always like, I'm trying to always earn my way back into his presence or something like that. Like I think, oh, I got the boot. I'll do this, I'll do that. I'll just, you know, cozy up to the Lord and, Make a way in for myself. And the book of Romans calls us to shed that cloak of religion. Toss that off. Just come by the unmerited favor of the Lord and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul gets through these initial kind of 
I don't know, introductions, formalities. And now he begins to tell these believers about his desire to come and see them. Check out verse eight. He says this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now again, Paul never planned, he never planted this church. There's no report of any of the 12 apostles at this point in time really uh, planting the church there. But Acts chapter two does tell us that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and they spoke in other tongues, that those who witnessed the outpouring of the Spirit were Jews and devout men from all over the Roman Empire. And as, Paul, as Peter began to preach that day, 3,000 came to faith in Jesus and you just have to think in that mix, there were people from Rome. It says people from all over the known world. And so they went home, new followers of Jesus. And you just got to think the church started that way in Rome. And maybe at this point in time, it's, it's 25 years old already. Was thinking about that, CTK is not even 25 years old. But the church in Rome probably was. And reports of their faith in Jesus had traveled all over the Roman Empire Check out verse 9, it says this, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You know, Paul knew some of these folks, he didn't know everybody in this, in this church or in this group of churches in Rome, but he knew some of them. And whether he knew them or not, he prayed for them. He prayed for the church in Rome. That's a cool thing. You know, the churches prosper when people pray. It's a week of prayer. Churches prosper when people pray. Because God wants our hearts. He wants us seeking him. Spurgeon said this. this some churches would prosper a little better if you remembered them more in your prayer. <laughs> and it's true. You know, it's so easy to say, I'll pray. And then do nothing. To do nothing. I always try and just stop myself from doing that. I don't want to ever flippantly say to someone, I'll pray for you, and then do nothing. So my personal habit's this. I, I try, if I say, I'll pray for you, I try to stop right there in the midst of whatever I'm doing in my mind and take care of business right at that very moment. Just pray for them so that I do what I said I was going to do. And Paul was praying for this church in Rome and, and he was willing to say, God's my witness, man. I've been pouring out my heart for you guys. And as much as he was praying for the, the church in Rome, he also had a strong desire to go to Rome after he visited Jerusalem. He's on his way back to Jerusalem in his third missionary journey. And so, you know, it's cool. God answered Paul's prayer to go to Rome. Sometimes, though, I would say this. God answers prayers in ways that you don't expect. And for Paul... You know, it was just an, it was an all-expense-paid trip. I don't know what else to say, you know. It came with shackles and a centurion and the whole deal. Sure, I'll send you to Rome, Paul. Let's go. I'll even look after the expenses, the Lord said. And he was transported there as a prisoner after he made his appeal to Caesar. You know, I was just thinking about that. Jesus said this. He said, remain in me, and if my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be given to you. you know, and you read that, and you go, Wow. The Lord just lays out a blank check, it seems, there for us. It's like, wow, we can pray and it's a blank check. I don't think Paul viewed prayer that way. You know, when Paul prayed that God would open doors and close doors for him to go to Rome, he gave God the blank check. 
That's what I think that verse is about. It's not God giving us the blank check. It's saying, in prayer, give me the blank check. Give me the blank check. You know, too often I'm like, okay, Lord, I'll be the quarterback on the power play. You go stand in front of the net. You screen the goalie. I'll shoot and I'll score and I'll get the credit for the goal and you just run some, some goaltender interference. <laughs> And I guess the question for us is this, are, you, are, are your prayers to the Lord open and honest and in humility laying out the blank check for him or are you telling him what to do? And Paul said, Lord, I have a desire to go to Rome. I want to be a blessing to those churches. I think, Lord, that you've put it in my heart to do that. I want to go and help those churches. You, you know the needs, Lord, I have and I give it to you. You open the doors, you close the doors. And the Lord said, okay, I've got an all-expense paid trip for you. <laughs> Let's go. Took a few years, and like I said, came with shackles. But God answered prayer, answered his prayer. And I would say this to us, you know, don't pigeonhole God in your prayers. Give him the blank check. Maybe you too can have an all-expense paid trip to prison or I don't know. <laughs> no, hopefully not. A cruise on the Mediterranean Sea, shipwrecked, you know, bitten by a snake, the whole deal. Plant churches and preach the gospel to the lost. It's a good prayer just to say, I'll go, Lord. I have a desire to go and I'll go. So you just make the way. That's what I think he did. Look at verse 11. He says this. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both mine, both yours and mine. So Paul just says this, I want, I want to impart to you spiritual gifts and in doing so, including himself, everyone benefits. Because spiritual gifts are for the, the whole church. They, they function to encourage one another and the one who functions, the scripture says, in their spiritual gift is one who's blessed and, and receives uh, the benefit of being a blessing to the body of, of Christ. So Paul wanted to do that. Verse 13, he says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. At least he didn't call them a bunch of barbarians. Uh, you know, following Jesus comes with obligations. Paul said, the gospel has put an obligation upon my life. The gospel has put an obligation upon my life. And here's the obligation, he said. I, I have to preach it. And you and I are obligated to that same thing. The gospel comes with that obligation. We're to proclaim it. We're to tell people. We're to preach it. And Paul felt that, that deep sense of that obligation the obligation of the gospel. Why did he feel that? I would say this. Paul felt it deeply because God's grace blew that man's mind. Paul was a murderer. You know, before Jesus, he thought that he was serving God and yet nothing could be further from the truth. And, and I would say if we don't sense the obligation of the gospel upon our lives, the obligation to share Christ Jesus, then, then it's likely that we've lost touch with who we were 
before Jesus. We've forgotten where we came from. We forgot that it was nothing but a sheer and total act of the mercy and grace of God that we were ever brought into the kingdom. It was all Jesus. He made his grace known to us. While you and I were still in sin, the scripture says, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that he sent his son. And we have an obligation to Jesus. We can't forget where we came from. People need to hear the message of Jesus. And so Paul allowed the grace of God to motivate him when he said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he comes, we'll, we'll just wrap up with verse 16 and 17 here. I'm going to kind of overlay the, the chapter 1 a little bit in some of our messages to come here. But then Paul introduces the theme of this letter. He says this in verse 16. I love this verse. Love both these verses. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, Righteousness from God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So firstly, Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why was he not ashamed of the gospel? Because he says this, the gospel is the power of God. That means this, that, that inherent to the message of the gospel is power. Power is built right into that message. That's why you went, oh, when you heard Genesis chapter 5 in the genealogy. There is power built in to the gospel. You and I do not give the gospel power. I don't give the gospel any power. The gospel in itself is inherently powerful. It's just that often we hinder the power of the gospel by not sharing it. You, know, you ever see our ad in the newspaper? I like our little ad. I think it's a nice looking little ad. And it says, it says this. Good music, good people, good coffee, and good advice. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it says good news. It's power. Good news. It's not that the, listen to this. It's, it's not that the, gos the gospel does not bring power Paul says the gospel is power. It is inherent. It is the power of God. You think about people that are, that are lost and don't know Jesus. They wonder why they exist. Taught that they evolved out of cosmic soups and from apes and all of these insane things. That their life is the result of an accident in the universe. They're deceived into believing that money and fame and possessions will give their lives purpose and meaning. People wonder why they exist and is life, you know, worth living and they go through the motions when the truth is this, that God loves them and he sent his son for them. He's designed them with a plan and with purpose. He designed them to be known and to know him. But the reality is, is this awful thing called sin has messed everything up. But God in his mercy and in his grace, because of his great love for us, sent Jesus to set things straight. Jesus came, the perfect man, 
It sent us the fullest expression of the Father's love for his creation. And he died for our sin in our place, received the punishment we deserved. He was buried in a tomb and three days later raised to life and he ascended into heaven where he's seated at his Father's right hand. And the Bible just simply declares this, that, that whosoever would believe in him no longer perish but have everlasting life. No longer experience separation from God because the gospel is the power of God. But Paul says this, this, the second reason that he was not ashamed of the gospel is this, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That, that means this, that the gospel reveals God's goodness. Oh, God hates his creation. Why did he do this? Why does he do that? No, Paul says this, the gospel reveals that God is virtuous, that God is good, that God is righteous, that all the time God is good and all the time, and, and good all the time. And because he is righteous, because he is good, he will not thoughtlessly wink at sin, nor will he wipe us out because of sin, rather he makes an offer to wash away the sin through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed because God is good and it's revealed in that gospel. Look again at verse 17 for it says, for, for in it righteousness it from God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, it's so easy to come to Jesus and in faith just say, Jesus, I believe you died for my sin. I, I, I believe you were buried, that you were raised from the dead, and that if I will turn from my sin and turn to faith to you, Jesus, you'll save me. You will make me righteous like you are righteous. You'll make me as though I'd never sinned. That's it. From faith to faith. Some translations say just from faith, first to last. Nothing to add. Paul's going to talk about this. Romans chapter 2. I love Romans chapter 2. He's going he's to be in a talk to people like some of us that have been sitting in church for a long time. He, he's going to address people on the outside, then he's going to address people on the inside. He's going to say, you both got the same issue. It's from faith to faith. You don't need religion. Put your faith in Jesus. Simply embrace the good news. And we tend to think that we have to add to our faith as time goes on, you know, we, we agonize over faith. We agonize over our walk with Jesus. We agonize over our spirituality. But Paul says this, no. From faith to faith, from first to last, the righteous live by faith. You want to be right with God? Then you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Done. Done. Believe on him and his cross and his resurrection. You turn from sin and you turn to Jesus. That, that's for the person on the outside. That's for the person on the inside of the kingdom. The math never changes. The righteous shall live by faith. You know, just as we wrap up, I, I think about just some things to take from this chapter. I would say this. First one, prayer. Give God the blank check. Let's lay it out. Give him the blank check. 
The second thing is this. We have an obligation to preach the gospel. It's, it's inherently powerful. Just open your mouth and get out of the way. And the third thing is this. That it's from faith to faith, from first to last. Just this week, say, Lord, I just want to cast off religion. Would you just set me free from that thinking and help me just to walk in the simple, simpleness of putting my faith in you and following you. Amen? Amen. Would you guys stand with me? Let's close in prayer this morning. Lord, we sang this morning, you are good when there's nothing good in me. And Lord, that is just the great mystery of your gospel, Lord, that when there was nothing good in us, Lord, you did everything in your goodness to pursue us. And you sent your son. He laid down his life for us. And this morning, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to cast off the, the yoke, the cloak of religion, Lord. That, that that burden that you would lift it off of us, Lord, and that we would just walk in simplicity of faith before you, that we would walk in the simplicity of having a relationship with you, Lord, that we would seek you, that we would long just to be with you, Lord, not because we're trying to earn anything, but because you're good, because you're righteous. And so, Lord, I pray for our church here, Lord. I pray for every person here that you would just teach us how to walk with you in a fresh way as we go through the book of Romans, Lord, that you just, you just strip off the religion from our lives, Lord. And this morning, I just, I just want to give opportunity, uh, if you just bow your head and close your eyes and respect your neighbor around you, but, but maybe, maybe you hear that and you're like, wow, that's really simple. It's like, man, I kept thinking God wanted me to do this, this, and this, and this, and jump through all of these hoops. And you're telling me all I have to do is put my faith in Jesus Christ and that's what he did on the, and what he did on the cross for me? Turn from my sin and just in faith say, Jesus, I believe in you? Yeah, that's it. And so this morning, if, if, if you would like to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life and make that confession that we talked about. Not Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Confess loyalty and allegiance to him and faith in him. I just want to give you that opportunity. And so if you'd like to invite Jesus into your heart this morning, just get my attention and uh, let me know. Give you that opportunity this morning. And so, Lord, this morning we thank you for salvation in Jesus. We thank you for grace. We thank you for faith, Lord, in you. And God, I pray your blessing over your people this week and over our week too, Lord, as we seek you in the place of prayer each night. The Lord bless you. Amen. Have a great afternoon. We hope to see you tonight. God bless.